Welcome to Troubleshooting Agile, a regular problem-solving session for Agile teams. I'm Squirrel, and together with my friend Jeffrey here, we explore common problems Agile teams face, such as slow delivery, tension with the business, or just building the wrong thing. We apply a wide variety of techniques with a special focus on human factors to provide practical, immediately useful advice for getting back on track. Well, hi there, Jeffrey and audience. Welcome to Troubleshooting Agile. I think we're on episode five and we're up to uh, the third Agile principle, which is delivering working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shortest time scale. And I have to say that, Jeffrey, it's a little hard for me to read that without laughing because uh, there's been such a evolution in our thinking since this was written back in 2000 or so. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a huge change where it used to be the idea of something in a couple of months seemed crazy because integration periods lasted a couple of months. This is a sort of classic waterfall where you'd separate all the phases and the, the uh, requirements phase was followed by the coding phase and then followed by an uh, integration phase before you even got to testing. So you, let alone having something that was quote unquote working you couldn't even get the thing to run uh, for months at a time. Absolutely. So the the, the, the uh, iterations at a couple months was were, was 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 uh, seemed inconceivable. And of course, there may be some of our listeners who are still in that circumstance, and will have some suggestions about how you could move from that position to something a bit more modern with some of the tools that exist. But it's not about it's, and I think this is the thing is that the tools exist and the practices exist, and so what what people really lack is the is is the motivation and the and the belief that they should do it, which is why when we were talking about this, I got very excited. To me, this is I'm almost as excited as I was about the first agile principle, which I said could almost be a manifesto itself. In this one here, I think if I think about uh, agile and the practices, I've always thought of retrospective as being probably the the, the most core agile practice. It was is if you have retrospectives and you're reflecting, you could sort of derive the rest of it. Exactly. But I think that the working software frequently is maybe the core discipline, the thing that you that you focus on. Are we doing it? If you if you if you're retrospecting on your ability to do working software frequently, uh, I think you'd you'd be doing fantastic. Absolutely. But it but just wanting to do it uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> which no, is certainly not probably where the discipline comes from. Exactly right. If it was easy, then you, you wouldn't need any discipline to do it. I've been reflecting as I suspect a lot of people are at the beginning of the year and I haven't moved off reflecting on how I should do more exercise. And that requires <laughs> discipline. You have to sit down and say, I'm now going to go get on the exercise bicycle. That requires discipline. Eating ice cream doesn't require any discipline. It's, it's easy and fun. I can do that all day. So that's, uh, I think, the discipline part. But Kent Beck has this great uh, commentary, which I know you and I have, have used over and over again in lots of different circumstances, which is that if something is difficult, you should just do it more often. Right. And Absolutely. Which I think actually applies perfectly because I think it was originally applied towards continuous integration. Exactly. But you can apply it all over. So there's lots of cases to do that. We'll do that on another day. But certainly immediately here, it's relevant because as you write code Initially, as you write the very first lines of code, unless you have it in mind or you have the habit, you're not going to create that code and create an infrastructure which allows you to do continuous integration, which is the situation we were all in years and years ago when you and I got started uh, with continuous integration in the early 2000s. 
And, right. and uh, I think you have a tremendous amount of experience there you might want to share with us. Well, of course, we, you and I met at uh, the conference I, I organized, which is KitCon, the Continuous Integration and Testing Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we met there in 2006. So for, for you and I, this is a, a very uh, well-covered ground. We've, we've talked about this many times and, and all those for the decade plus that we've been doing the, the conference. Uh, we've really seen a huge explosion of knowledge and uh, out in the industry. And, and there's no reason for us to recap it here. One of the great things that have come out of all of the seeking and knowledge building is a, is a very succinct book uh, uh, called Continuous Delivery by Jez Humble and Dave Farley. And so if anyone who wants to get caught up on what they should be doing, that's out there as a, as a, as a great resource. Um, and goes through a fair amount of the history as well, including Jeffrey's being modest. He he helped hugely to contribute to the very first continuous integration server cruise control. So we should give Jeffrey credit. Well, thank you. And and, and many others and all the people who, who made those practices popular. The thing is that so there's it, all the techniques for doing this are out there. So that we get to the question then about, well, what's lacking? I mean, we'll start, we'll stick with the tools for a little bit. You You would think that, People would already, if they're, if they have the, the, they should see that how this, this principle of working software frequently relates to what we've talked about before. The first principle said we, we needed early and continuous delivery. Now we're kind of getting more specific and saying we want it, you know, frequently from a couple weeks to a couple of months. Although I think maybe today you might say more like every few days or every few weeks or every few hours. Or every few certainly, few, indeed, there are teams that do that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's set the bar high. <laughs> yes. Um, and then we ha- we also had the uh, last time we talked, it was about uh, things like the OODA loop and able to uh, respond quickly with changing requirements. So this is really still important that uh, people have the, the infrastructure and the design and the mindset that allows them to have the ability to respond quickly. Absolutely. You, you might even think of this principle as an enabling principle. That's why we were talking about it in our pre-podcast discussion. It's something that gives you the ability to do some of the other principles. And we'll even say it's a foreshadowing of principle number seven. So if you want to go look up number seven or, or wait till we get there, you'll see that this is enabling a, a number of different other principles and practices that you'd like to be able to do. So you're, you've told me that this, so this is very common. You basically, you don't go to a, a startup without seeing this thing in place. Absolutely. Well, the, uh, thing that I do typically is to come into a startup that isn't working well for some reason or another, that isn't scaling, that needs help improving. So I'm working with quite small teams with relatively young code bases. So my sample size is uh, skewed, but I almost never come into a startup without some form of continuous integration in place. But the interesting differentiator is when they show me their Circle CI or their Jenkins or something like that. Uh, how much it's actually being used uh, in line with this principle and how much it's continuous integration theater. So there are certainly circumstances where they've done it so they can have a tick in a box someplace and they use it as a deployment mechanism. And it's better than, uh, I remember the very first time I wrote a deployment script, it was automating 50 page document that described all the different things you had to do to deploy some software. So at least we're not in that world. That's good. But actually using continuous integration to continuously deploy to get software in the hands of real customers often is something people don't always do. Sometimes they just use it as a crutch or a a 
thing to tick a box with. And the thing I always like to remind people is that you can actually do continuous integration with nothing more than a rubber chicken. So if anybody has not read, we'll put it in the show notes, James Shore's uh, brilliant chapter in his book. It's, uh, it was also a blog post first, Continuous Integration on a Dollar a Day. He describes exactly how to do continuous integration with an old computer and a rubber chicken. It works very well and you don't need Jenkins. And and I think this is it because it's about the going back to the point of discipline. It, what what's the discipline here? It's not about having a tool. It's about having working software at all times. And and how do you know that you have working software? Well, in, in what James would do, he says, well, you just you you have check code you want to check in. You go to a machine and you run it. And you make sure it works. And you don't commit if it's broken. But that's very straightforward. It's that it's that discipline and commitment. But it's easy for people to say, well, I've, I've, we, we have the tool and therefore we're done. And actually, James and I uh, ended up meeting at, at the first KitCon because he actually wrote, you mentioned my involvement in cruise control. He, he, he'd written a blog post called Why I Hate Cruise Control in a similar time period for this reason, which is people would say, well, I, I've got a server installed and therefore I must be doing continuous integration. Indeed. You might even argue that the tools are making it easier for us and therefore we're losing the discipline. I'm not sure whether that's a universal truth, but I certainly see it occasionally that a startup that I work with will have loads of tests that are read. They release maybe once a week if they're lucky, but they say, but of course we're doing continuous integration. Look at our Circle CI instance. But how do, how do teams get away with this? I mean, you, you've gone into startups and you found people doing this as a checkbox. Why, why is it that they're allowed... To, to get by without offering this capability to the business? Well, I think there are really two reasons that startups in general get away with this. I'm sure it's true of other organizations too. It's because either the, the, the tech folks don't know to offer it and there are tools they can use to do that. And there are mechanisms that they can use to explain to the rest of the business what they can do and, and how they can uh, deliver value through these uh, applying this principle. And also the business just don't know to ask for it or how to use it once they've got it. So often they won't prioritize it. It'll sound to them like, oh, those developers, they're always talking about their tests and making them green and stuff. And I just wish they built some software. And of course, that's a misunderstanding, but it's a common one and one that's uh, helpful to give people tools to, to, to get past. Well, so we're we're talking here so far a lot about the 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 testing and very very technical side, but we've also talked about how there's a there's a, a step before this, which is if we want to be doing working software on short intervals, there's actually a, a very much a technique a, a to being able to break down work into small pieces that can be delivered frequently. And I know this is something that you very frequently use with. Can you talk about the exercise you use? Uh, absolutely. And uh, this is the, the the bit on the first side of the two uh, principle, the two problems that I was describing before. This is the, the tech and product folks not understanding what they can offer or how they can go about offering it. Uh, the uh, source of this for me, uh, this idea has been described many different ways, but this is the one that has worked best for me, comes from our old friend, Alistair Coburn, who's a ag agilist from long before you and I uh, got going knows tons and tons, and wrote a wonderful blog post in which he tried to describe this uh, principle of breaking things down into very, very small pieces using the metaphor of elephant carpaccio. <laughs> so uh, lots of listeners will probably know what carpaccio is. I'm a vegetarian, so I had to look it up when you told me about it, Jeffrey. It's slicing meat into extremely thin slices. They're so thin that when you hold them up to the light, you can see through them. That's how thin they are. And 
Alistair was trying to describe the notion of taking an elephant, that is some big project or some big feature that you want to add to your software, some huge business value, like uh, our customers can see their analytics in useful graphs or something, something very vague, but high value, and breaking that into tiny pieces that you can complete. In Alistair's case, he says he can do it in an hour. So I typically tell clients, look, it'd be absolutely wonderful if we could break this big thing that you'd like to work on into pieces that we could measure in one day tasks, just completed in a day and completion means all the way to live. So that's where we start running into this friction where people say, well, of course I'm doing continuous integration, but you want me to deliver every day? How would I do that? That's where I get the sense that maybe they don't quite understand <laughs> what they mean by continuous integration and delivery. So you say if the people don't have the, the technical capability, if they're not able to do these things, break the work down into very small, thin slices and deliver them at least daily. So if you start trying to do that, you learn where your technical restrictions are. And those are actually pretty easy to get around. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on those. But the the product side of it is a greater challenge often, especially if you solve the technical problems, which most of my clients usually have. And then they say, well, I don't know how to break it down. I mean, what I want to do is produce this big, complicated thing. So what I have them do is, first, I have everybody who comes into the room add to a picture of an elephant. And everyone has to draw one line that adds to a very, very basic outline of an elephant. And they eventually, by the time you get 20 people in a room, they've all added one line. It kind of looks like an elephant. It's not usually very artistic, but it does look more like an elephant. And that's Alistair's point is he says, when you're slicing down work, you, you can almost always slice it into pieces because you have to type one character at a time, right? So you, it is sliced in, into at least characters, but those characters aren't valuable. And the, cr the crucial insight is that you want to slice your elephant, that is your big piece of work, into pieces that at least look like the silhouette of an elephant. And so it's actually the orientation of the slicing that's important. In other words, you want to slice your elephant vertically. So you're moving from the back of the elephant to the legs of the elephant vertically up and down rather than slicing your elephant horizontally. If you slice from top to bottom, and someone was pointing this out when I did this last week, you don't get a perfect silhouette of the elephant. And similarly, you won't get a perfect illustration of your overall value when you do this with software, but you will get something that kind of looks like an elephant at every stage. And that's what my drawing exercise does as well. At every stage, it looks like an elephant. It just looks more and more and more like an elephant as you add more and more and more lines or more and more and more slices. Whereas what happens when you slice the elephant horizontally is, well, the first slice has four circles, which are the feet, right? And the next one has four more circles and four more. And then maybe you have some ones that look like <laughs> knees. And then you have a big belly. And then you have a bit of the tail. And then you have a bit of the trunk. And it, at no point does any individual slice look like an elephant. When you add them all up, they do. The analogy here is to starting with the database table and then the database schema and then the business logic and then the uh, user interface API and then the actual user interface. And then finally you say, I'm done. And the customer says, that wasn't what I wanted. Right. <laughs> and what, what you'd much rather do is slice the elephant so it looks like an elephant at every stage. So, so this is end to end. You, you have a UI and you have your database storage. You have all the pieces in there. It's good to go at, at right from the very first delivery. Well, interestingly, you don't actually have to have all the layers necessarily present. Sometimes you can get away without that. And I have an example I can go through. Um, I had a client, the very first one I taught this technique to, I was learning it as well, at least in this uh, description of it from, from Coburn. The 
client wanted to create a color picker. So I'm sure we everybody's seen a color picker, right? It has a little wheel. It's like a little circle and it has different colors in it. And you click somewhere within the circle and then the color you have selected shows up in a little box. And then you say, yep, that's the color I wanted. Or no, you click again and you pick a different one. And when you pick the one you want, you click select and you're done. So it, what you might think is, well, what I first have to do is create a uh, column in which I'm going to store the color. And then I'm going to need to make sure that color has an effect somewhere they wanted it to change the color of a graph. So you'd have to make sure that you had a way of using that and so on and so forth. You'd build up all the pieces until eventually you'd show the color picker to the user who would then say, I didn't want to change the color of this graph. <laughs> and you find it out. That's what we want to avoid. So what we did instead, and this is a, an abstracted example, I'm not sure if they did it precisely this way, but the illustration is still valid. They, would, uh, they first created a button which said, open color picker. And the button didn't do anything. That took them one day to create and figure out where it should go and kind of get the design right and so on. And, well, the button did do something. It put up a little box that said, thank you for expressing interest in our color picker. And <laughs> then they would also record who had done that. And so they could phone them up and say, what did you want to change the color of? And they could learn quickly what was happening there. So that was day one. And you could get that all the way to live. So you could get through all the processes of quality control and code review and everything and get it live. Then the next day, they created a JPEG, literally a picture of a color picker. You clicked on it, nothing <laughs> happened because it was a picture of a color picker. And they put that up. And similarly, if you clicked on it, we put up a little box and said, thank you for expressing interest. We noticed you clicked here. Would you like to talk to us about it? So then it could get more feedback. This style, by the way, only works if you have a reasonable number, amount of usage, and they do. They're, they're retail-based, so they, they have a reasonable number of people coming through. They also labeled it as beta, so people weren't surprised by some things that didn't work. <laughs> and if people complained, that was great. That meant they were interested, so they were very happy. Your mileage may vary. If you're, if you're building banking software, this might not be the right thing to do. <laughs> what do you want to change the, the, the color of the banknotes and banking software? That might be yeah, you, yeah, that might not be what you're doing. You know, <laughs> I want to deposit a thousand pounds. Oh, sorry. Glad for it. You're glad you're interested in making a deposit. No, that's, yes. that's not going to. Obviously, but there, but there may be ways uh, it, 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 that will try. Absolutely. And, and, and can, we can go into it in more detail. If people are interested, uh, feel free to tweet or, or email us and, and we'll, we'll go into more detail on how this works in other circumstances. But just to finish the example, after they got the JPEG up and saw where people clicked, then they put up a version that let you select the color from the wheel and you'd see it in the little box. But when you clicked save, it didn't save. Then it would just put up a, another box that said, hey, thank you for this. Where did you expect it to go? please talk to us. And then eventually, once they had gotten enough feedback, then they actually made save, save the color, and then they put it in the database. Then they made it actually alter the color of the graph, and then they received feedback on that. So they were able to go through all these steps, and each of them was deliverable in very clearly in a day. It was very simple to complete, but each one gave them valuable feedback from their users, and they were able to, to slice it up so that at every stage it looked like an elephant. And I love this story that you've just told because it bridges when you know we're talking about the the challenges of why why are people allowed to get away with this, and it's really that they're not being asked to deliver it. And so there's two challenges: can the the, the technology side of the organization do they have the right skills to deliver, to slice things down and deliver them incrementally? And that's something of what you're describing there. But the second is, does the business have the right mindset that they're out there to learn? Absolutely. And in this case, they didn't at all. How would you build that capability within them? How would you help them to understand that that would be valuable to 
do a process like the one I just described. Well, I haven't listened to this podcast now next time. <laughs> and and what we listened to last time where we described uh, that the the value of the OODA loop that we're trying to go through here as quickly as possible. And really the concept of the MVP, I mean, and we used this last time, an MVP is the idea of investing the least to learn the most. And I, I think your example of the color picker is fantastic illustration of that. Just if no one clicks on it, we haven't invested very much. All we invested was putting a, a, a button on the page and recording that someone clicked. That's much cheaper than building out the whole feature. And, and for anybody who, who doesn't remember from last time, could you just remind us what the OODA loop is? Yes, the um, observe, uh, orient, decide, act. Uh, this is the idea of the process you go through, take your observations, orient around, uh, decide what you think they mean, what you're, what you're going to do, and then do your action. So exactly. You, and here we're learning from customers by seeing where they click. And so we're getting around that loop very quickly without doing all the investment that we would have to do to build the entire elephant. Right. And we're and, and this this idea of the minimum viable product, I think people sometimes get it wrong because they think it doesn't apply to them because, well, we already have a product. We don't, you know, we already have a, something that's making money. But we say minimum viable product, this is a concept you can apply really to any product capability. What's the minimum amount that you need to invest to learn? And to, the idea of how, how is learning going to help our business? How is learning going to help us um, is, is, is actually something that a lot of businesses on the business side aren't prepared to engage with. They, they have the idea, well, we've talked to our customers. We know what they need. They, they, we believe we know everything. So just go build what I'm asking for. And so the demand from the business sometimes can be, you know, I just, I just want it all to be done. And I'm not interested in incremental milestones. I'm not interested in, in getting a, a, a demo every day of, of, uh, of, of these things. Just let me know when it's done. And I sure. think that's a, that can be a real challenge to uh, this idea of working software delivered frequently is if your stakeholders aren't buying in. But I have a lot of empathy for those stakeholders because a, a, a thing that I often observe when I work with teams and get them to the stage where they are demoing daily is that people say, I never knew you could do this. I never knew this was possible. I didn't know I could ask for something like this. I didn't know I could get this kind of feedback from customers. So although there certainly are folks who say, look, I just know exactly what I want, build this, even they benefit from daily demos because they can give feedback on it. But there are frequently, very often, salespeople, marketers, other folks in the business, customer service people who come back to me and say, I just didn't know our team could do this. It's amazing. Uh, could we try doing it this way? And usually the answer is yes. So often just offering it will help people to understand how they might use it and giving them some examples of use cases are, is even better. Yep, absolutely. So those are the, those are the things we've talked about, some of the obstacles of uh, for people really engaging with this principle, the, uh, the, the, the discipline of it, um, delivering working software frequently. What, what is frequently for, for people listening today, I think you really should set the bar higher than, than we did back in 2000. Alistair, of course, was one of the signatories of the Agile Manifesto, and I'm sure he, uh, like me, went through places where there was multi-year delivery timeframes. And so now to, to, to uh, the idea of, of waiting of a couple of months of being a short time scale seems a little bit laughable. Now, the question we had though for listeners uh, is, is we, we're going to go something, do something new this time and uh, create a poll uh, on the troubleshooting agile Twitter feed. Cause we want to know if you, uh, how are you doing on this principle? And uh, yep. we have, uh, we have four options for people to choose. You want to give us our options, scroll? Indeed. So the, the question is going to be, what's the obstacle for your organization to delivering working software frequently? And we've offered four answers. We'd love it if people had another answer. That would be interesting. But we've said that the tech team can't offer 
a solution that allows people to do this. The business don't ha- know how to use the capability that we have. Both of those, i.e. tech and business, both don't know how to take advantage of this principle, or neither. We're already delivering frequently and things are working well. We'd be really interested to hear from our listeners uh, where they fit on any of those four or someplace else. Yeah, and I'm, I, I can't wait to see the results because I, I, hopefully it'll be. We'll see how much the industry has really moved ahead, um, and if, uh, if if we get some, a lot of people telling us uh, uh, either tech or business, that will be a really interesting insight. So I'm 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 fascinated to see these results, and it'll inform future podcasts. Well, Jeffrey, I think that's all we have to say on uh, Agile Principle Three. Looking forward to discussing Number Four with you next week. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks, Jeffrey. Bye, squirrel.